Hello, and welcome to One Single Thought, the podcast where two Christian single women take theological deep dives and bring perspectives on life, mixed with levity and joy. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of One Single Thought. Today, we are doing another special episode, very different than what we normally do. Um, Again, we are not doing any crazy questions, Ricky thoughts. We are going to focus on Rose's book once again. If you tuned in last time, I interviewed Rose Mm -hmm. about her book. I asked a bunch of questions um, just to get to know Rose a little bit, her story, and her book, even though I know her story, I know Rose, and I know her book. But (laughs) (laughs) her book, Dancing in the Valley, which is now available on Amazon, you can go out and buy it right now. Go out there and Hit that little add to cart and That's right. buy Rose's book. And so today, this is a very special episode. Rose is going to read the first three chapters of her book so we can have a little sneak peek of what's available to purchase from Amazon. So yeah, so Heather's right. It's available on Amazon. I'm going to read the first three chapters of the book to give you just a little preview of, of the story. And, of course, we've, we've ditched a lot of our normal parts of our episodes, but we always have a one single thought, no matter mm-hmm. what our episode is. And so the one single thought for today is, this is my story. Great. Well, tell us your story. Okay. <laughs> Introduction, Chapter 1, August 28, 1964. The baby is coming, but it's way too early. I'm only five months along. These were the words Rose uttered when she realized the baby she was carrying was on its way, but not the way she expected. Her husband, Floyd, immediately took her to the hospital with mixed emotions of what would happen next. They didn't say much as they arrived at the hospital, expecting the worst, but hoping for the best. After three miscarriages and 17 years of marriage, Rose and Floyd had finally made it to the five-month mark, and now the baby was coming early. Could this really be happening? But it was. After a few hours in labor, a baby was finally born to these two anxiously awaiting a child. A baby boy entered the world. He was born at 11 p.m. at St. Mary's and Elizabeth Hospital in Louisville, Kentucky. Four hours later at 3 a.m., he was gone. His cause of death was attributed to prematurity and atelectasis, a collapsed lung. In this day and age of medical technology, he would have lived, but not in 1964. Hopes and dreams were dashed. A couple longing for a child came so close, only to experience loss a fourth time. As the medical staff completed the final paperwork, a nurse approached Floyd and Rose and asked, What would you like to name the baby? Without hesitation, they said, Floyd H. Booth, Jr., Looking perplexed, the nurse said, are you sure? Emphatically, they said, yes. Rose responded first and said, this may be the only child we ever have, and we want to name him after his dad. The story in the pages to follow tells my story. My name is Rose, but I am not the mother in this tragic tale. I am her daughter. You see, God had other plans for this defeated couple. He had blessings waiting But in the depth of a wilderness of struggle, this couple had no idea what was in store. 
September 28, 1965. After the loss of my brother following three miscarriages, my parents were discouraged, to say the least. Dr. Charles Bryant was my mom's doctor. He was one of those good old-fashioned general doctors who treated the common cold and delivered babies. He sat down with my mom shortly after this loss and said, Get right back out there and try again. Really? Pretty progressive for 1964, Dr. Bryant. But try they did, and four months later, I was conceived. Because of my parents' trust in God and their doctor, I would enter the world a year and a month after my brother. The weather was starting to turn crisp, much cooler than the year before. The time had come for me to be born. My parents lived with cautious optimism. No baby shower. The crib and high chair were all borrowed. During this pregnancy, my mom felt the best she ever had. Her doctor had discovered she was a type 2 diabetic, so his care for her stepped up to ensure this pregnancy would go full term. My due date was October 3rd, but the doctor decided to induce on September 28th to have more control in case something went awry. Mom arrived at the same hospital where my brother was born with a bravery I wish I could have seen. She arrived at 8 a.m. and the Pitocin drip began. At 2 p.m., Mom had her first labor pain. At 4.38 p.m., I was born. I was 8 pounds, 14 ounces, and healthy. Little did she know that this baby would begin a life not only marked by miracles, but laced with the unbelievable. This is my story. My story. The story I want to share is about how my life has been a mix of miracles and struggles, triumph and tragedy, unexplainable yet intentional, and from the providential hand of God. To begin, I share about who I am and then take you on a journey through my life from my first breath until today. I focus on a recent time when my world was turned upside down and I almost left this earth three separate times. But having some background of my story helps show all the pieces at play. My hope is that you will see the weaving of God's miraculous works in the midst of the darkest of days, and how I've been broken and rebuilt by his mighty hand, all for his glory. From the first moment I can remember, I was told I was a miracle. You've gotten the pretty dismal snapshot of my parents' lives, 18 years of marriage, three miscarriages, one premature baby who died shortly after birth. So when my mom was able to carry me to full term and deliver a healthy baby, that was nothing short of a miracle. I never knew my brother, but somehow his sacrificed life allowed mine to exist. Had he survived, I might not be here. My parents might have had their one child and been content. I often think of my brother and the sacrifice he made without even knowing it. It modeled the gospel for me before I could even comprehend what Jesus did. My parents were followers of Christ, so I was in church from the moment I hit the cradle roll. I came to follow him at age eight, more on that later, and lived to serve him to this day. Even though there are plenty of only children, I seem to have been raised differently. My exposure to other only children portrayed an outcome of extremely spoiled and whiny kids, expecting their parents to cater to their every whim. My parents pushed me to be independent and make my own life. They knew how fragile life was and wanted me to develop relationships that would last long after they were gone. Smart cookies. When I was young, they would frequently remind me that they wouldn't be around for most of my life as they were older, 
so I needed to make friends that were like family. On more than one holiday, when we'd get home from our festivities, I'd have a friend who'd want to spend time together. Unlike most only child parents, mine eagerly pushed me to go and enjoy. To them, it was planting seeds of relationships that would last a lifetime. My parents were always there if I needed advice or help on a decision. After they helped me set up my first bank account as a senior in high school, I can't remember another decision they didn't let me make entirely on my own. From deciding what I would do for college to buying cars, they were there to answer questions but ensured I was taking the lead. Even though I loved that independence, I was, and still am, not a fan of adulting. When someone asks me to share about myself, I typically describe myself like this. I'm a single, never married woman who loves the Lord. I've worked for 30 plus years in publishing and technology, and I'm not sure where my next venture will take me. Again, more on that later. I'm active at my local church, teaching ladies the Bible and co-leading our women's ministry. In my free time, I love to craft, read, and spend time with friends. And I love to write, but you've probably figured that out by now. As an only child of older parents, I was quite unique growing up. I was the only grandchild on my mom's side of the family. On my dad's side, I was one of a gazillion grandchildren, but the only one my grandparents never met. My dad was one of eight children, and he was a twin. The first four of his siblings were born, then came some gap years, and then the second four were born. He and his twin brother were in the second set of siblings. Due to my paternal grandparents' older age when my dad was born and the 18 years my parents waited for me, they both passed before they could meet me. My dad's oldest sister, my Aunt Stella, was like a grandma to me, and we would visit her every summer in Michigan. She and I were pen pals until the day she died. I felt like God gave me a little bit of my grandma in her. I never had a pet and was obsessed with stuffed animals. I served on the newspaper staff during high school and scored a rare interview with the new county superintendent upon his arrival in the position for a story I was writing. If I'm anything, I'm tenacious. These are a few glimpses into my life and environment as a child. My young life was different than most with my physical limitations and medical issues. As I grew into my young adult years, though, life seemed to level out with some normalcy. But then my life took some twists and turns that would test the strongest of souls. Like most others, I have faced extreme tragedy and loss, near-fatal car accidents, the loss of both of my parents, and recent battles with my health when my life almost ended. My life has been marked by moments where I have watched others, and myself, dance in the valley of death. You may be thinking, Rose, how is your story any different than the countless others who face tragedy and loss? What's in this book that isn't in the handful of others about tragedy? I'll answer that question by asking you some questions. Do you believe your life has a purpose? How do you get through the valleys and struggles of life? Is there really a God if you're going through suffering? Okay, you believe in God, but does he really love you? If those questions have ever crossed your mind, driven by tragedy or not, this book is for you. My goal is to show you my journey and all the reality that it has been. No Christian sugarcoating. I love Jesus, but traveling this journey called life has not been easy. Maybe you're a believer and say, I can't rejoice in my suffering. We'll get on board this train. We'll wrestle together with what it means to live in a broken world and watch God work. 
I began following Christ at the young age of eight, and I grew in my faith, especially during the college years. It was then that I learned how to have true time with the Lord daily and experience the joy of having other believing friends who challenged and encouraged me. When my life took a turn for the worse in November 2019, I knew the foundation of the faith I had was all I had. I always felt like I'd been through enough in my life and was in a good place spiritually that something so tantamount wouldn't happen to me. Little did I know the battle I would face physically and spiritually. I can't promise by the end of this book that you'll have all the answers, but I know who does. God. My goal is to point you towards him and not to give up. Let's go. The Valley of the Shadow of Death Psalm 23.4 reads, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I've read this verse no less than a thousand times, and I've been intrigued by the phrase, the valley of the shadow of death. Christians often interpret that as difficult times, suffering in that period before we enter into eternity with our Savior. You may wonder, as did I, if there is an actual valley of the shadow of death. In Israel, there is a place called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. It's known to be a steep, narrow, and dark canyon where the sun only reaches when it's directly overhead. It's thought that David brought his sheep up this valley. Let's think about the real valley as it relates to what we read in Scripture. David wrote Psalm 23 and used this imagery, as he did with sheep, to show a picture of a tough valley that only saw the sun when it was directly overhead. We know the sun, Jesus, is with us as believers, no matter where we go in the form of his Holy Spirit. He resides overhead to guide us through the most difficult passageways in our life, just like the sun is evident in the valley when it is directly overhead. How much more vivid this verse becomes. In my life, I've watched those I love travel through the valley of the shadow of death. My mom died in 2000, and as she lay in a coma, at one point, she sat up and raised her hands, saying, Daddy, Daddy. Maybe she saw my granddaddy, or maybe she saw her eternal father. The sun surely was overhead of her at that moment, and she was ready to go to her heavenly home. I watched my dad suddenly pass in 2013, and I know his journey through the valley was short compared to so many. Multiple times I have found myself dancing in the valley of the shadow of death. What does that mean? It's a phrase I've used during the times I have danced with death, either personally or an observation of others. The first time I danced in the valley of death was when my family was involved in a car accident when I was seven. This event haunted me because everyone said I shouldn't have survived the accident. A mere change in seating and I probably wouldn't have. So to me, that's dancing. Why dancing? The word seems awfully joyful to use for such tragic events. Maybe. But even though I didn't pass from this life to the next, I've been on the cusp. And I see it as dancing because there is nothing I look forward to more than being in heaven. Now, I only have felt that way after a recent turn of events in my life. I would quote my dad who would say, heaven is my home, but I'm not homesick yet. This life is all we know, and we want to make the most of our time here. Let me remind you, though, this isn't where the real party happens. It happens in heaven, and there will be dancing. So why not start when we're on our way to that destination? 
Being spared in that accident was a miracle and a blessing. I wouldn't truly grasp that until I would dance in the valley again. The Early Years Chapter 2, 1970 By the age of five, I knew something was not right in my body. My ankles were sore and stiff, and I couldn't walk far without asking my dad to carry me. The pain was unbearable. My ankles had become rigid, unable to move like normal ankles. Oh, I played and romped in the backyard in the kindergarten playground, but walking any distance was out of the question. That's when my long journey of medical procedures and doctors began. After seeing my general doctor, good old Dr. Bryant, he referred us to orthopedic doctors to evaluate me. From ages 5 to 12, I saw more doctors and had more tests than most people do in a lifetime. From brain waves to x-rays, I was poked and prodded endlessly. My mom continued to remind me of the harsh look on my face after my first brain wave. After all the prodding I'd been through, the brain wave was the last straw. During a brain wave, electrodes with small metal discs are affixed to your scalp. I distinctly remember the feeling of the two electrodes on my temples, pressing into my head like heavy railroad spikes. When it was done and I was reunited with my mom, my furrowed brow and pouty lip told a story. Your girl here was not happy. I endured countless appointments, and yet there were no conclusive answers. I had my physical limitations, but I pressed on by the grace of God. Around the age of eight or nine, I was sent to the Child Evaluation Center in my city of Louisville, Kentucky. They ran all sorts of tests, from neurological to behavioral. I spent a good two days going through multiple consultations. The final report was issued to my parents with this highly medical diagnosis. All indications are normal. The only issue we see is that her body is built like a lemon on two toothpicks. My parents were livid. Say what? Because my legs were skinny based on the proportion of my torso, doctors assumed this was causing my pain and limitations. My parents were pretty resilient people, but they were getting close to the end of their ever-fraying rope. The last orthopedic surgeon I saw in 1977 said an expert from Johns Hopkins University would be in Lexington, Kentucky at the Chandler Medical Center, the hospital associated with the University of Kentucky. He felt having an examination with this expert would be beneficial in targeting my problem. Once again, I was pulled out of school to head to Lexington for a day of evaluation. I remember exactly what I was wearing that day, a red, white, and blue outfit my mom had just bought me. After this visit, I never wanted to wear it again, mainly due to the memories it conjured up. This visit would be the last one I'd have before moving on with life, still with my pains and still no answers. After the day of testing, the team of doctors suggested a muscle biopsy. No one had ever said anything about my muscles. Quite frankly, they were pretty strong compared to my joints. My dad asked, so if we do this biopsy, will we have answers? They said, not necessarily. There are 40 plus muscle diseases and we aren't sure that is even the issue, but it's the only thing we think could shed some light. My dad, who was never short on words, said, we'll pass. I'm not putting her through anything else if we can't be assured of answers. That was it. The doctors and my orthopedic surgeon told me to live life. And if I showed signs of other problems, we could investigate further. I was done. Years of learning nothing, yet still suffering, were exhausting. Life continued on, albeit with adaptations. I continued the piano lessons I had started in the second grade and found joy in reading and crafts. 
Searching for hobbies that were less physically demanding helped me stay busy. I still experienced pain but learned to block it out and often pushed through it. If I was on a school outing, I could keep walking even though I wanted to cry because my ankles hurt so terribly. I wanted to be a normal kid. So part of me was thrilled this journey of constant medical assessments was over and I fought to ignore the symptoms that persisted despite a lack of answers. It worked for the most part until 1993, but more on that later. Hindsight being the 21st century, I was likely suffering from what is now diagnosed as juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, JRA. Though some pediatric arthritis diagnoses occurred overseas long before the 1970s, the first JRA diagnosis in the U.S. came in the late 1970s, early 1980s, with more accessible treatment available in the 1990s. Too late for me in my childhood pain. My childhood and adult life were very different due to this journey of suffering. I look back on my life and think, what if they could have diagnosed and treated me in 1970? Perhaps my later diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis, RA, would have been easily diagnosed. Or, if I could have received the treatments available for JRA today, back in 1970, the outcome of my health might have been different. If my JRA could have been treated, I would have missed out on the life I had, which wasn't all doctors and hospitals. It was marked by slowing down and finding enjoyment in a gentler paced life. I couldn't hike through the woods or run sprints with my friends. I often found myself on the sidelines watching and cheering others on, but it gave me a perspective on life I might not have ever had. Because of my pain, I became an avid reader. This activity wasn't physically taxing on my body. I also learned to play the piano. My hands didn't suffer from any issues and keeping them moving up and down the keyboard helped me feel accomplished. My mom gave me a choice as a young girl. You could participate in Girl Scouts or take piano lessons, but not both. Given I wasn't the outdoorsy type, I chose piano. Down deep, that was her choice for me, but she did give me the option. My mom had been given a piano when she was younger. Her family could never afford to pay for her to have lessons. It was her dream to one day have a daughter who would play the piano. And though she gave me a choice... I had heard the stories about her childhood piano and knew that was her desire for me all along. I took those lessons for 11 years and ended up teaching beginner's piano as my part-time job during college. Though my physical challenges kept me from playing sports or doing things other girls my age might do, God used this time and the hobbies I could do. Piano would later supplement my income and be part of my first ministry position in my local church, playing the piano for children's choirs. Even in the midst of what could have been disappointment, God blessed. I likely would have never sat still long enough to practice or play the piano if my body would have let me be as active as the next person. To this day, I know I would have found myself competing in some sport and taking a different path. My spirit was driven and competitive, but trapped in a body that couldn't be athletic. God used this wilderness of limitations to prepare me for my first role in ministry, long before I followed him as my Savior. Psalm 1611 says, You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. David wrote this psalm, and, though we're not sure of the context, he was proclaiming his satisfaction in God. I love the opening verse, which says, Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. 
Oh, how God has kept me safe and has been my refuge, even when I had no idea what he was doing. When you're in a wilderness and can't see what it means, look through the dust and chaos to see how God is shaping you for something in your future you can't yet see. Chapter 3, November 5th, 1972. It was a crisp, sunny Sunday afternoon. When we left church that day, my dad wanted to head to Madison, Indiana. I let out a harumph because my normal Sunday afternoons were usually filled with good food at my granny's house and spending the day with her. As any seven-year-old would do, I whined a bit about why we had to go, and couldn't we just spend the day at Granny's? Seven-year-olds don't win in those arguments, at least not in my world. We headed to the cemetery in Madison to see my grandparents' graves. Spending the day driving to walk around a morbid cemetery to find my grandma and grandpa Booth's grave sites was not appealing, especially given I've, I never met these grandparents, and I preferred being with the granny I did know. But my dad was determined to go, so we all three loaded up and headed north. This was in the day before car seats and safety regulations. I always sat between my mom and dad in the front seat. Always. I didn't like being in the back seat by myself, but preferred to be up where the action was. Bench seats allowed for that to happen, and my parents would oblige. You'll soon find out how life-saving a choice that was for me. After we visited the cemetery, we headed home. I had my notepad and pencil in hand and was drawing away, oblivious to the world. And then it happened. Boom! Our car was hit and we went flying. I don't remember much and likely passed out for part of this event. But when I came to, I was stuck under the glove compartment on the passenger side at my mom's feet. I could hear voices but had no idea what happened. When I was pulled out of the car, I saw giant pigs standing next to the car. Now, they weren't really giant, but to a small child, they seemed giant. I can't remember who pulled me out of the car, but I saw my dad standing there talking to a policeman. The swish of cars whizzing by above my head made me realize the powerful hit our car took had caused it to careen over the guardrail and into a field. A field of pigs. I don't know if I was more concerned about being attacked by a giant pig or that something awful had just happened. There was a lot of commotion, and I saw my dad up and moving, but my mom was on a stretcher. My dad seemed somewhat okay, but my mom, not so much. I remember seeing blood all over the car seat when I was pulled out. Since I didn't notice any blood from me, I knew it must have been from my mom. From what I recall, they wheeled her into the back of the ambulance, and my dad was with her. They plopped me in the front seat with my dad's handkerchief because I was bleeding on the bridge of my nose. I remember the siren being so loud and a piece of glass coming out of the corner of my eye. I tried to hand it to the driver who told me to just hold on to it. What I don't remember, but was told later, is that I asked everyone I saw not to let my mommy die. After arriving at the hospital, we found out that my mom had broken her pelvic bone in five places. She was eventually transported to a local hospital in Louisville, where we lived, and her recovery would be long. She would be in the hospital for weeks before coming home to rehabilitate. This was a serious injury and more than my little mind could comprehend. As an only child and introvert, my mind went into overdrive. This might have been the first time I became an overthinker. All of a sudden, life wasn't the same anymore. My mom wouldn't be taking me to school. I found myself being taken care of by my granny and neighbors 
while my dad tended to my mom and worked his job. The biggest thought that kept running through my mind was how my mom and dad could have died, and I could have died. I couldn't get my head around the fact that I could have lost my parents. All of a sudden, death became a reality. My dad wrote letters to my mom in the hospital. This was odd because, yes, he visited her daily, but dad communicated well in writing and sometimes better than in person. I still have some of those letters he wrote to her during recovery. He would tell her how I was doing and the questions I was asking. This wasn't the only time letters strengthened the bond between my mom and dad. Letter writing was how they fell in love. You see, my mom and dad met while he was serving in the Navy during World War II. So he first learned how to be the most vulnerable with my mom through his letters. Writing to her while she was in the hospital for so long was a healing balm for my dad. Watching all of these events unfold rocked my world. Our normal life schedule changed and things that I depended on my mom for were being done by my dad and various other people. Going to bed without her there to kiss me goodnight seemed wrong. I was scared that maybe she wouldn't come home. The first time I went to see my mom at the hospital, my granny fixed my hair in two big ponytails with curls. I was scared to death to see her. Would she look the same? Could she hug me? It was so much to take in my seven-year-old mind. Of course, she did look the same and could hug me, so my little heart was calmed. After weeks in the hospital, mom finally came home. I was overjoyed. She spent a lot of time in a recliner in my room recovering, and I was so happy. Having my mom home somehow gave me the assurance that she wasn't going to die, which became my biggest fear in the weeks following the accident. As she got back to life and returned to doing what she had always done, I began to show signs of the trauma I experienced from the accident. Every day when she dropped me off at school, I would ask, Are you going to be back to pick me up after school? This indicated I knew the fragility of life and maybe she wouldn't be back to pick me up. That was heavy and ominous thinking for a youngster. I lived in fear of death, not only of my parents, but even my own death. Things weren't supposed to change this drastically in a young child's life, yet mine felt out of control since the accident. On that Sunday afternoon, my whole world changed. But I was trying desperately to keep things the same and to be assured my mom and dad weren't going to die by the time I got out of school. What God used from this traumatic incident was what drew me to follow Jesus as my Lord. After the accident, everyone who had been at the scene asked, How did you all survive that accident? From what I understood, we were at a stop sign turning left on a two-lane road. To the right, the driver was coming over a hill at an advanced speed and hit his broadside on the passenger side of the car. This was why my mom was severely injured. The impact of the car was so intense, we were catapulted over the guardrail into the field below. I remember my dad feeling guilty for a long time that he didn't see the oncoming driver. According to police, the other driver was going at such a top speed, he likely came on faster than my dad would have seen or realized. Dad now walked away with scrapes and bruises. Mom, of course, didn't. And it was confirmed that had I been in the back seat, Sand's car seat, it was 1972, I likely would have been thrown from the car and died. All of this information haunted me as I thought of my family's near experience with death. This was the first time I danced in the valley of the shadow of death. I had been raised in the church, so I knew enough that if you follow Jesus, you live with him forever. 
I knew my parents were believers, and I knew that was a decision they couldn't make for me. I had to make it for myself. However, I hadn't quite connected the dots, since I assumed death was for people very much older than me. After the accident and our dance with death, God began to work in my heart to start asking questions about becoming a Christian. The thought of being separated forever from my parents was something I couldn't fathom. I loved Jesus, but I was just learning what following him and asking him into my life meant. For as long as I could remember, I heard about Jesus. I knew he loved me, but the concept of being a follower of Jesus was something I hadn't really considered until I came so close to death and being separated from him for eternity. In August of 1973, an evangelist named Angel Martinez came to my church, Ninth and O Baptist Church, the church I still attend to this day. In the 1970s, evangelists were having revivals at Baptist churches all the time. One thing Angel Martinez did was make the gospel so simple, even a child could understand. He shared how to pray to receive Jesus as your Savior. My mom said she saw me praying along with Angel Martinez to accept Christ as my Savior. My head was bowed and I wasn't playing with my toys but paying attention. When I raised my head, she said she'd never forget the glow on my face. Though my mom witnessed that moment, she wanted me to initiate the conversations and truly be sure I was ready to make that commitment in my life. Over the coming months, I started asking questions, and my parents became intentional in answering them. My parents were keen on any conversation that led to questions about faith. I don't remember all the things I asked, but I'm sure I asked about what it meant to follow Jesus and other elementary questions that a seven-year-old would have. We talked about the next steps in my journey of faith, like baptism, which was my biggest fear. I didn't know how to swim and was afraid of drowning, but I knew my first act of obedience was baptism and I wasn't so sure about that. After talks with my parents and then talks with our pastor, I decided to make my commitment public on Sunday, May 12, 1974, which happened to be Mother's Day. Interestingly, my dad had been saved on Mother's Day years before. I don't remember a thing the pastor preached, but I do remember what I was wearing. It was a green dress that my granny had made, and it became my favorite dress. Unlike my red, white, and blue ensemble from my earlier experiences, I had fantastic memories associated with this outfit. I was ready for the invitation at the end of the sermon so that we could get the show on the road. When the invitation happened, I headed forward and prayed with my pastor to ensure all was settled in my heart. I'm nothing if not thorough, even at age eight. It was another few weeks before I was baptized. Nothing like the Lord testing your faith out of the gate. The baptism went fine and I didn't drown. I was so happy after that event for my salvation and that my first step of obedience went well. For a long time, I thought my salvation testimony was rather boring. Raised in the church, saved at the age of eight. But God revealed to me later in life how my testimony was special. I saw God in that horrific car accident. As a young child, I didn't see the significance in the timing and outcome of that event. But God used it to show me how easily life can end and my need to follow Christ at an early age. I don't know if I would have accepted Christ at such a young age had it not been for that accident. Can you be thankful for such a terrible event? In retrospect, I was. In the story of Noah, he was chastised and made fun of for building the ark when there had been no rain yet. I often ponder how he felt every time someone questioned him, yet he continued on with the task God gave him. What a faithful trooper. 
Because of his faithfulness, he and his family were saved. While he was gathering gopher wood, he may not have seen God in the midst of his every day. Oh, sure, he was following the direction of God on building the ark, but he had to battle the opposition daily from those who thought he was losing his mind. God was working, even though others couldn't see it. And I suspect on some days when Noah couldn't see it either. As life-changing as the accident was, I didn't come to be thankful for it until much later in life when God revealed his presence through that storm. When it all clicked, I was blown away that God would love me enough to save me. Jesus came for me. Jesus died for me. And he preserved my life that day so that I could follow him. Only God works in ways that make no human sense. Thanks, Rose, for reading that. And we're all excited, um, those of us who've been able to read it, and even those of us who have heard a little bit of it, I'm sure by now are very excited to read all of your books. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. Yes, and as we mentioned early in the episode, the beginning, that you know, our, my one, our one single thought is this is my story. All right, well, our next episode is coming up on December 20th, right before Christmas, and we are going to do something a little fun and lighthearted to close out the year. We are going to do an episode of Movies You Missed and review the movie White Christmas Yay! with Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye. So if that's a movie you like to watch or if you've never seen it and want to watch it, check it out. Um, I'm not sure where it's available, but we'll... We'll link that we'll in the show notes. We'll link that in the show notes so you can get ready and then we'll talk about it. And until next time, don't follow your heart, follow God. We hope you've enjoyed One Single Thought. Our theme music is provided by Lindsay Cook and we're so happy you joined us. Please be sure to share this episode with a friend and don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss a single episode. We'd love it if you'd rate and review our podcast so more people can find us and join our tribe of listeners. 